Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Like everyone else, Mary Soptic expected a normal workday on January 2nd, 1935. She was a maid at the Hotel President in Kansas City, Missouri, and must have been glad that the New Year's Eve mayhem and messes were behind her. She clocked in around 8 a.m. For the next few hours, she scrubbed, swept, and dusted her assigned rooms. Around noon, she rolled her cart down to room 1046. It was locked, so Mary knocked quietly, expecting to be sent away. But instead, a strapping young man opened the door. Mary noticed his eyes shift around before he ushered her inside. The state of the room was even more troubling than the man's demeanor. Even though it was the middle of the day, all the shades were drawn. Mary tried to concentrate on cleaning, but couldn't stop glancing over at the man. Her eyes followed him as he pulled on his overcoat and stepped into the bathroom. He didn't turn any lights on in there either, but as he combed his hair in the dark, Mary spotted a large scar above his left ear. As she continued working, the man got ready to leave. On his way out, he asked Mary to leave the door unlocked when she was done. He said he was expecting a friend. Mary agreed and watched as the door latched behind him. She paused to wonder why he'd acted so strange. In just a matter of days, she wouldn't be the only one left wondering. But no matter how deep investigators dug, answers always seemed just out of reach. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This episode covers the puzzling 1935 murder of a hotel guest in Kansas City. We'll explore the odd events that led up to the gruesome death and follow investigators as they try to figure out the victims and the killer's identity. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state.
By 1935, the hotel president in Kansas City had already entered the history books. Though it had opened less than 10 years earlier, the castle-like building served as a political headquarters during the 1928 Republican National Convention. Over the years, it had played host to celebrities and world-class athletes. But on New Year's Day, 1935, the hotel's most infamous guest checked in. It was just after 1 p.m. The bellboy, 22-year-old Randolph Propst, manned the front desk. The lobby doors opened and a tall man strolled in. He wore a dark suit and overcoat. His face looked otherworldly and ageless, with soft features, sparkling blue eyes, and a dramatic widow's peak. He could have been a mature-looking teenager or a baby-faced 30-year-old. As the man sidled up to the desk, Randolph noticed a large scar on the left side of his head, about the size of a fist. He had clearly tried to comb his hair over it. In a soft southern twang, the man requested a private room. He wanted to be a few floors up and didn't want street-facing windows. Randolph suggested room 1046 on the 10th floor. It had a window overlooking the interior courtyard. The man seemed satisfied and gave Randolph his name, Roland T. Owen. Roland said he was traveling from Los Angeles and filled out a registration card in neat, practiced cursive. Wow, Los Angeles? Uh, are you new to Kansas City? Uh, been here for a while, actually. I just came from the Hotel Mulebach over on 12th and Baltimore. Uh, they charged me $5 per night, if you can believe it. Had to find something more affordable. Glad you found the hotel president. We do our best to keep luxury affordable. $2.50 a night, no more, no less. The bellboy rounded the desk, but noticed that the man didn't have any luggage. Bags out front, I assume, sir? No, I have everything I need in my pockets. Ah, a light traveler. Uh, you should see some of the 40-pound trunks that the other guests come in with. <laughs> uh, uh, let me show you to your room, sir. They took the elevator to the 10th floor. Once in the room, Roland reached into his pockets and removed a hairbrush, comb, and a tube of toothpaste. Randolph politely excused himself, but as he turned to leave, he noticed that Roland had exited the room as well, and he hadn't locked the door behind him. Can I go ahead and lock the door for you? It's a two-way lock, so if you lock it from the inside, the staff can't get in. If you leave and lock it from the outside, the maids can still use their keys. It's very secure. I see. I have some friends coming a bit later. What if I'm in the room and one of my friends takes the key and locks it from the outside? Hmm. I suppose you'd be stuck in there. Though, I don't know why... Forgive me. I, I get paranoid in these places. I never know who's next door. Anyway, I'll be heading out now. Yes, lock the door for me, please. Very well, sir. Randolph mulled over Roland's odd behavior. Everything from his lack of luggage to not locking his door behind him was puzzling. 
The thoughts left his mind, though, as he didn't see the guest again for a few days. One of Randolph's colleagues, a maid named Mary Soptic, did interact with Roland a few times, and each encounter was stranger than the last. Around noon on January 2nd, Mary entered room 1046 and was surprised to find the shades drawn and the lights off. She had a quick conversation with Roland while she worked. Before she left, he asked her to leave the door unlocked for a friend who was visiting. She did as he asked. A few hours later, she returned to the room with fresh towels. It was still dim, but that wasn't what frightened Mary. Roland was sitting on the bed, motionless and fully dressed. Mary didn't know what to make of this. She later said that Roland seemed, quote, either worried about something or afraid. But that was just the beginning. The next morning, when she made her usual rounds, she realized Roland's door was locked from the outside. At first, she was relieved. This usually meant the guest was away. She could finally turn on some lights and give the place a good scrubbing. But when she stepped inside, she found Roland sitting on the bed yet again. Mary was dumbfounded. Only one key could lock the room from the outside. Roland couldn't have locked himself in there, which meant someone else did. When he finally came out of his daze and noticed Mary, he acted like nothing was wrong. As she dusted the counters and fluffed the pillows, Roland stood and made his way to the corner of the room to pick up the phone. We don't know whether the phone rang or if Roland dialed someone, but we do know that according to Mary, he spoke to someone named Don. No, Don. I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. The call was tense enough, but Mary became especially uncomfortable when Roland tried to play it off afterward. Miss? Sorry to bother you, but how long do people tend to stay at this hotel? Is it normal for someone to stay here for a week or more? That depends on the guests, sir. Some check out after a night, a few stay for months at a time. Months? That's good, right? It's nice to know your neighbors, unless one of them has it out for you. When Mary finally made her way out of the room, she noticed a piece of paper on the desk. It was scrawled in pencil and read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. Mary wondered if Don was the same visitor Roland had mentioned before. Maybe he was the one who locked Roland inside. These thoughts only intensified the next day when Mary visited room 1046 for the last time. It was late afternoon as she approached the door, balancing a stack of folded towels in one arm and reaching out to knock with the other. She paused when she heard two men talking inside. Their voices were low, so she couldn't make anything out. When she finally knocked, the conversation halted. Who is it? Housekeeping. Brought new towels since... Don't need them. We got plenty. Good day. Mary shuffled back to the laundry room. She didn't interact with Roland or the mysterious man in his room ever again. 
but that didn't mean the rest of the staff was done with them. Early on the morning of January 4th, the switchboard operator noticed the signal light for room 1046 flicker on. A buzzer sounded from the board. This meant that the phone had been pulled off the receiver. The operator assumed that the guest needed her help dialing someone, so she plugged into the switchboard and asked who they'd like to be connected to. But all she got from the other end was silence. Minutes passed and the buzzer persisted. The operator wondered if the phone had been knocked off the hook by a sleepy or drunken tenant. Her shift was about to end, so she let her replacement, Della Ferguson, deal with it. The buzzing continued as Della sat down at the switchboard around 7 a.m. At this point, she figured someone should check on Roland. She notified Randolph, the bellboy on duty at the time. He raced upstairs, and though a do not disturb sign hung from the knob, he knocked anyway. A gruff male voice came from the other side of the door. Come in. I can't, sir. It's locked. Turn on the lights. You can do that yourself, sir. Sir. (sighs) I hate drunks. Just put the phone back, will you? The phone remained off the hook until 8.30 a.m., Around then, a different bellboy, 19-year-old Harold Pike, was sent upstairs to check on things. He found the room locked from the outside, which told him that someone had left and taken the key with them. Harold crept inside and surveyed the scene. Not only was the phone off the hook, but the entire phone stand had been knocked to the floor. He tiptoed through the room and placed everything back in its proper position. Just as he turned to leave, he jumped at the sight of a naked man in the bed. When he stopped and looked closer, he realized the man was unconscious, but he could hear him breathing. Harold assumed the man was hung over and quickly made to leave before he woke up. In his haste, Harold caught sight of a large dark spot on the bedsheet. It looked like blood, but Harold told himself it was only a shadow. He just wanted to get out of there. Meanwhile, downstairs, the switchboard had finally stopped buzzing. Harold reported back to his supervisor that he'd placed the phone back on the receiver. He also said the guest was passed out naked and probably drunk. He mentioned the door had been locked from the outside, but he didn't mention the dark spot. In any case, it seemed like everything was back in order. The calm didn't last long, though. About five minutes after Harold left room 1046, the phone fell off the hook again. Shortly after, Della was moved to a different switchboard. About two hours later, at 11 a.m., her replacement sent Randolph back upstairs. Once again, he cautiously knocked. No answer. He used his passkey and pushed open the door. There was Roland, crouched just a few feet from the door, with blood 
trickling from his head. Coming up, the guest in room 1046 finally checks out. They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known. Men and women who went to lethal extremes. But why? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree. Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. And now back to our story. It was a little after 11 a.m. on January 4th, 1935. Randolph Props stepped past the bleeding man in room 1046 and flicked on the lights. There was blood everywhere, on the walls, the bedsheets, even the ceiling. The bellboy raced to the hotel president lobby and alerted the manager. Together, they returned to the room and tried to get inside once more, but the man had moved. His full body weight was now pressing against the door, so they could only pry it open a few inches. It's unclear whether the manager had heard the maid, Mary Soptic's odd stories about the man, who called himself Roland T. Owen. But he assumed that Roland had fallen while in a drunken stupor. He called for a doctor. Strangely enough, when the physician arrived, the door opened easily. Roland had somehow moved into the bathtub, but was barely breathing. It only took a few seconds to realize that he'd suffered a lot more than a nasty fall. His neck, wrists, and ankles were bound with a clothesline, and he had several large gashes in his chest. His neck was covered in bruises, and his skull was fractured and caked in dried blood. It looked like he'd been stabbed, beaten, strangled, and then tied up and left for dead. They then called the authorities. As the doctor took a closer look, he realized the wounds had been inflicted hours earlier. The attack had probably occurred around four or five that morning. The doctor clipped the cords and lifted Roland out of the tub. Roland lunged for the faucet and tried to turn the hot water on. It seemed like he was delusional and thought he could clean himself off. The other men subdued him, then carried him onto the bed. Soon, police and medics swarmed the room. Detective Ira Johnson made a beeline for Roland and tried to get some answers out of the barely conscious man. Who did this to you? Nobody. I... I fell. This was an obvious lie. Detective Johnson tried to ask more questions, but Roland fell silent. The medics stepped in to rush him to the hospital. On the way there, Roland slipped into a coma. Detective Johnson must have hoped to pry some information from Roland once he was in better shape. But just after midnight on January 5th, Roland succumbed to his injuries. He was dead. The police were now looking at a murder. 
They needed to contact Roland's next of kin, and they had no idea who to call. Roland told the hotel he was traveling from Los Angeles, so detectives dialed the LAPD. That's when they learned there was no one in L.A. named Roland T. Owen. In other words, Roland had lied about where he came from. For all anyone knew, he could have lied about his name, too. Officers did a thorough sweep of room 1046, hoping to find some identifying information, but Roland's room key and clothes were gone, as were his hairbrush, comb, and toothpaste. Police believed Roland's killer had taken his things. Only a few small objects were scattered around, including an unsmoked cigarette, a hairpin, two water glasses, a small unopened bottle of sulfuric acid, and a ripped-off label from a cheap necktie. Investigators tried to figure out how these clues fit in with the hotel staff's stories about Roland. Their statements indicated that Roland's traveling companion, Dawn, was the most likely suspect. The hairpin opened up another possibility, though. Perhaps Dawn had a female accomplice. All of this was conjecture, though. The police needed to confirm Roland's identity before they did anything else. So, without any solid leads, the detectives did something that might seem strange today. They put his body on public display. They hoped that someone would recognize his face or the distinctive scar on the side of his head. According to police, thousands of Kansas City residents viewed the remains, but no one could definitively identify him. Investigators kept the body on display. In the meantime, returning to their most reliable witnesses, the hotel president's staff. They combed through Randolph, Mary, and Harold's statements, trying to find clues about Roland's situation. Unfortunately, he'd been tight-lipped about what brought him to the hotel. However, both Randolph and Mary remembered him mentioning another hotel, the Hotel Mulebach. He said he'd spent New Year's Eve there. The detectives contacted the Mulebach. There was no one named Roland T. Owen in their guest logs. But there was a man who said he was from Los Angeles and had requested a room that didn't face the street, just like Roland. The name he gave was Eugene K. Scott. Authorities believed this had to be the same man, but they couldn't celebrate quite yet. They soon learned there was no one named Eugene K. Scott in the L.A. area records either. They assumed both names were pseudonyms used by the same man, which meant they were still on the hunt for his real identity. In the meantime, they laid the man to rest. In early March 1935, the Kansas City Journal-Post announced that after being on display for 11 weeks, Authorities planned to have the body buried in a pauper's grave. Soon after, the Journal Post received a strange phone call. I'm calling because one of the stories in your paper is wrong. Sorry, ma'am. You can reach our corrections department at... No, no. Write this down now. Roland Owen will not be buried in a pauper's grave. His funeral expenses have been fully paid. I don't think that's true, ma'am, unless you know something I don't. What's your name, by the way? That makes no difference. Good day. 
The reporter may have thought it was an odd prank, but the funeral home received a similar call. Roland Owen must be buried in Memorial Park. I'll pay for it myself. Money is no object. I'm sorry, sir, but I don't quite understand. If there's someone you're trying to reach, I can... I have nothing else to say, except this. Owen hadn't played the game fair. And cheaters usually get what's coming to them. Two days later, the man followed up on his promise. The special delivery envelope arrived at Melody McGilly Funeral Home with just enough cash to cover a burial plot in Memorial Park. It seemed like the woman's prediction came true. Authorities must have wondered if the two callers were in cahoots. More importantly, they wondered who these strangers were, especially considering the man's ominous sign-off. While compelling, it hardly mattered because the police couldn't track them down anyway. Calls were much harder to trace in the 1930s, and whoever addressed the envelope had used a ruler to trace each letter, rendering their handwriting untraceable as well. Whoever these people were, they seemed confident their identities were safe. Not long after the money arrived at the funeral home, someone sent an anonymous request to a nearby flower shop, asking them to send 13 American Beauty roses to Roland T. Owen's grave. And that wasn't all. They'd also asked the florist to attach a card. They requested three simple words. Love forever. Louise. The press got a hold of the information, and soon enough, the killing was dubbed the Love Forever Murder. Even national outlets picked up the story. American Weekly called it America's strangest and perfect murder crime. Their full-page story included photos of Roland's hotel registration card and a close-up of his scar. But this wasn't just for sensation. The editors seemed to hope that one of the magazine's six million readers would recognize the victim. The Kansas City Police Department was flooded with letters and phone calls after this story was published, but hardly any of them had to do with Roland's real identity. Instead, callers shared their own theories, no matter how outlandish. It's obvious that Roland T. Owen was ritually tortured and slain by his lover, Louise. <laughs> if that is her real name. I mean, how do the police know she's even really a woman? Didn't a man pay for the burial? Smells like a scandal to me. It was a mob hit, obviously. Roland must have been involved with this Louise woman, but she was a gangster's girl. That's why he was hiding out in a hotel, and she's probably the one who sent the flowers. I'm disgusted by the fact that a crazed killer is on the loose in Kansas City, and the police are doing nothing about it. Who cares who Roland really is? Some psycho is still roaming the streets. He's probably going after the children next. Don't you care about the children? Though most of the letters read like cheap pulp, police followed up on a few, but they quickly hit dead ends. The flames seemed to die out from there. 
the investigation lost momentum, and more than a year went by without any major developments. Then, in the fall of 1936, a copy of the American Weekly story, complete with all of the photographs, found its way to a woman in Birmingham, Alabama. What's this? Kansas City. Roland T. Owens. Oh no, I've got to call Mama. Mama, have you seen what's in the paper? Not yet. What's going on, Eleanor? They ran a story called The Mystery of Room 1046. Look at the picture. Oh, my. That man looks just like... Artemis. Do you see the scar? It's just like his. Oh, this is just like we feared. What did your brother get caught up in? Eleanor Ogletree and her mother Ruby hadn't seen their brother and son, Artemis, for about two years. He'd left home in 1934, looking for adventure on the open road. He was 17 years old then, which would have made him about 19 in January 1935. Ruby sent a photo of her son to Kansas City authorities. She explained that Artemis sustained a matching scar from a hot grease accident when he was a baby. Detectives couldn't deny it. Artemis Ogletree and Roland T. Owen were identical. The police proudly announced the discovery, but they knew that was only half the battle. They still had to find Artemis's killer. To do that, they'd need to find the beginning of his story. Coming up, Ruby delves into her son's past, hoping for some answers. Now back to the story. In the fall of 1936, Ruby Ogletree told a story. She brought Kansas City detectives back to the spring of 1934, the last time she saw her son. 17-year-old Artemis decided to leave Alabama and hitchhike across the country. This wasn't out of character. He'd always been daring. Another teenage boy named Joe Simpson went with him. Even though it broke her heart to see her son leave, Ruby probably found comfort in the fact that he wasn't hitting the road alone. She reminded Artemis to write home and then sent him off on his grand adventure Over the next few months, Artemis regularly wrote to Ruby. Though his letters were brief, he always assured her that things were going well. She was happy for him, even if he started to feel further and further away. He told her he'd spent a few weeks in New Mexico, had a short stint in Los Angeles, and planned to head back east to settle in Kansas City. Ruby may have started to lose hope that he'd return home but she never imagined it wouldn't be by choice. 
In January 1935, the letters stopped coming. Or at least the ones Ruby was used to. Between August 1934 and January 1935, all of Artemis's letters had been handwritten. Ruby didn't expect anything else. Her son had never learned how to type. But that January, she received a typed letter from him. In it, Artemis said he was in Chicago, on his way to New York City. Ruby found the message odd, not just because it was typed, but because it didn't sound like her son at all. It was more detailed and effusive than usual. Her concern grew when she read that Artemis was going to Europe soon. In April 1935, another typed letter arrived. According to this one, Artemis had joined the crew on a transatlantic freighter. He said he'd be in Paris by the time she read it and told her not to write until he had a permanent address. But that address never came. Instead, Ruby got a phone call that August from someone in Memphis, Tennessee, who claimed to be Artemis's friend. Mrs. Ogletree, so very nice to speak with you. Sorry, may I ask who's calling? Uh, I've forgotten to introduce myself. I'm an associate of your son's, brilliant young man. I met him in Cairo. Egypt? Yes, ma'am. He hasn't written since Paris. Well, you see, he's unable to write these days. Got into a spat with some bandits soon after he arrived in Cairo and lost a finger. He saved my life. May I speak to him? He's not with me now. I'm in the States on business, and I wanted to let you know of his whereabouts. He really is a fine young man, and I'm sure he'd tell you he loves you if he could. I never did catch your name. Godfrey Jordan. Godfrey Jordan. Ruby was fairly certain the caller was an imposter. She got to work trying to find Artemis's actual whereabouts. Throughout the fall of 1935, she wrote to the FBI, State Department, and even President Franklin Roosevelt. She was able to confirm that her son didn't have a passport, and by all accounts, had never set foot in Egypt. With this, Ruby had a chilling realization. Someone pretending to be Artemis had been corresponding with her the whole time, ever since she'd received the first type letter in January. Then came October 1936, when the American Weekly article helped her put everything together. After Ruby identified her son, she sent copies of all of the letters, handwritten and typed, to the Kansas City Police Department. The messages did more than help detectives understand Artemis's life before the murder. They listed the hotels where he stayed before checking in at the president. In particular, Artemis seemed to have spent a considerable amount of time at the St. Regis Hotel in the fall of 1934. Officers checked the Regis guest log and found someone who checked in under the name Armistice Ogletree. According to the log, Armistice stayed there from October 25th to December 31st, 1934, and he wasn't alone. He shared a room with a man under the name Don Kelso. 
Detectives thought back to Mary Soptic's claim that she heard Artemis speaking to someone named Don on the phone and had seen a note addressed to him. Now they had a full name to work with. That is, if it wasn't an alias, too. They hoped it wasn't because it was the only lead they had to work with. They combed through public records, searching for anyone by the name of Don Kelso, but to no avail. The investigation went dormant once again. Over a year passed, and by the summer of 1937, the police lost hope. The Kansas City Chief of Detectives, T.J. Higgins, put the case on the back burner. This single decision seemed to cause a karmic shift. Just a few months later, in February 1938, he caught wind of something he couldn't ignore. A Manhattan man has just been arrested for the murder of one Oliver George Cynical. The man, named Joseph Ogden, was apprehended after he attempted to ship Cynical's nude, lifeless body to Memphis, Tennessee in a standard-issue traveler's trunk. Ogden is a career criminal who has lived in multiple asylums and prisons. He has gone by several aliases over the years, including John Marshall and Don Kelso. It's unclear exactly how Detective Higgins learned these details, but he wasted no time sending evidence to the FBI. Before hearing back, Higgins told the press that Ogden was their number one suspect. Ogden was already booked in Sing Sing for Oliver George Cynical's murder, and we don't know if he ever responded to Higgins' allegations. In the meantime, Ruby Ogletree continued her own investigation, Apparently, she didn't agree with the Joseph Ogden theory. She was more focused on someone else, Joe Simpson. Joe was Artemis's traveling companion. Ruby contacted him multiple times, but he dodged her for years. And that is, until December 1939. Tell me, Joe, why did you avoid me for five years? I don't know, ma'am. I thought you'd be hysterical or something. Ma'am? Sorry, sorry, you just... remind me of someone. Anyway, I'm looking for information. Now, when did you last see my son? Don't remember exactly. We stayed together in Los Angeles in 34. At some point I went up to San Francisco. He said he'd join me there, but I guess he changed his plans. Actually, he left me a letter in Frisco. I'll bring it to you when I can. I'd appreciate that. If I'm being honest, I'm not sure it'll do any good. Seems like they'll never find who killed him. Maybe they won't, but you should never question a mother's determination. Do send that letter along to me when you can, and before you go, by any chance, did the letter mention a travel companion? A man named Don Kelso, perhaps? I don't remember. It was hard to read. Badly typed. Typed, you say. If you recall, Artemis only sent his mother handwritten letters until January of 1935, which was more recent than when Joe claimed to have stayed with him in San Francisco. What's more, Ruby thought she recognized Joe Simpson's voice 
It sounded just like Godfrey Jordan's, the man who'd called her from Memphis. All of this led Ruby to believe that Joe Simpson had something to do with her son's murder. She wrote an exhaustive account of their conversation and mailed it to the Kansas City Police Department. But they still viewed Joseph Ogden as their main suspect and had also begun following some other leads involving sex offenders in the Kansas City area. Ultimately, these theories didn't hold water, and even the investigation into Ogden fizzled out. The case sat in limbo throughout the 1940s, until the FBI finally took a look at the evidence. They also began to focus their efforts on Ogden. Agents compared Ogden's handwriting with the note found in Artemis' hotel room. They wanted to see if the two Don Kelsos were, in fact, the same person. In December of 1950, they announced their findings. The handwriting didn't match. Joseph Ogden was finally cleared as a suspect, and his use of the name Don Kelso was written off as a mere coincidence. The police were back at square one, a full 15 years after the murder. From then, the trail went completely cold. It's unclear why the police never turned their attention to Joe Simpson. Over the years, many people have tried to explain Artemis's baffling death. Some believe he was being watched and relied on the mysterious Don to lock him in his room from the outside so he'd be safe. But Don might have slipped up at one point, allowing Artemis's pursuers to enter the room. With so little information, there's not much we can speculate on. However, the past has a way of visiting us again. According to the Kansas City Public Library's local history blog, in the early 2000s, a library associate and researcher received a phone call. An out-of-state caller said they were sifting through a recently deceased elderly person's possessions. They found a trove of newspaper clippings about Artemis Ogletree's death. They asked for some more information about the case. Later in the conversation, the caller revealed that an additional item was packed with the clippings. In fact, the newspaper stories mentioned this very item. The library associate asked what it was. But the caller never told him. And when the call ended, all that was left besides the dial tone were still more questions than answers. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Artemis Ogletree, amongst the many sources we used, we found Kansas City Magazine's The Owen Case by Martin Cheesmar and the Kansas City Public Library's The Mystery of Room 1046 by John Arthur Horner, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kylie Harrington, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Mickey Taylor, Produced by Joshua Kern and sound designed by Brian Golub. It stars Nazee Tarsha, Laith Walshlager, Zelda Diana Black, Ellie Schiff, and Rebecca Thomas. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.